Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is Harmonizing the Prophets. coming back for another episode. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about Article of Faith number nine. We're going to look at it through a critical lens. And by this, we're going to examine it as if it were a scientific claim, something that would be observable and verifiable. I made a TikTok discussing some of the ideas from my previous episodes. A response I received on a few occasions from believing members was that I needed to go and look into Article of Faith number nine to better understand the reasons for some of the changes. I made a post on TikTok about the change in vernacular from the ED past participle ending to the gerund ing ending of the use of the word restored in the vernacular of the Mormon church and how leaders in the church used to use the word restored to describe what happened to the church and its theology and have now transitioned to to using the word restoring to explain what is happening in the church. So the use of the word restored is very frequent in the church. It's been a phrase that they have used since the beginning. And there are countless usages of the word in general conference talks Doing a quick search on ldsgeneralconference.org, you can look up the corpus of all of the general conference talks from 1851 to today, and you can get a sample of what phrases were used to get an idea of what's being discussed. Now, if you search the word restored, you have this concept of restored being discussed. 113 uses, uses in the 1850s, 94 in the 60s, 253 in the 1870s, 248 in the 1880s, and it bounces in that ballpark anywhere between 150 to 300 uses of the term restored every 10 years. Each sample of this is 10 years of conference talks. So a whole decade of of discourse and how many times a, a word or phrase is used in that decade. Now, the word restored has been used since the beginning of the church. But if you type in if you type in the term ongoing restoration, it's this it's this idea that the restoration wasn't finished. It's it's the concept that the church is still being restored. The truth and light is still being restored to the church. The first iteration of ongoing restoration being mentioned in General Conference was in 2019. And since 2019, it has been used 11 times. So in the last two and a half years, we're talking 2019, all of 2020, and half of 2021, it has been mentioned 11 times. And there was never a single mention of this phrase before 2019. 
to the ongoing restoration. And in each of these talks, we have Elder Rasband using it, we have Elder Iring using it, Elder Gong, like all of these apostles and Elder Iring, which is in the first presidency, using the term ongoing restoration. They're trying to control the conversation and shift it away from, from the restoration being over with and done to something that is that is still happening today. I think the church can do some really cool things theologically if they continue to move in this direction. I think it frees up space for them to make helpful changes to both the LGBTQ rights and to feminists. If they're trying to shift the theology and and create a space for an ongoing restoration, there there is a space for them to receive revelation and make the changes to be more inclusive to the communities that they're that they're not being helpful to. So back to the back to the conversation that I had through TikTok, a couple of people sent me messages instructing me to look at Article of Faith number 9 to root my understanding of this concept in scripture. So let's read Article of Faith number 9. Article of Faith 9 reads We believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal, and we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Face value, that sounds great. If you believe in God, that is exactly what you would want a prophet to be able to do, to reveal the will of God. On the LDS.org, or on the churchofjesuschrist.org website, for Article of Faith 9, It explains a little bit what it means by reveal. It says, God can reveal things that happened in the past. For example, God revealed to Moses how the earth was created. (laughs) God revealed to Moses how the earth was created. This phraseology is really frustrating to me because, because even as a believing member for a long time, I did not believe in the literal historicity of the Old Testament. The second thing they say about revealing is, hey, God can reveal things that are happening right now. For example, listening to a prophet at General Conference. And then God can reveal things that will happen in the future. So if we are to understand this scripture, it's saying that God talks to his prophets and reveals things to them. It would mean specifically that he reveals the doctrines and policies and the direction of the church. In order to better understand this, I want to examine this article of faith as if it were a hypothetical claim. So let's so before I jump too far into this, I want to define a few words. I want to define a hypothesis and a theory. In the English language, we interchange hypothesis and, and theory, but the scientific definition of theory is different than the than a hypothesis. So a hypothesis is a supposition of a, or a proposed explanation made on a basis of limited evidence, usually a starting point for further investigation. And in order to do the further investigation, you look at evidence, you, you get a sample, whatever it is, whatever the hypothesis is about, you get evidence for it, trying to understand if it's testable, if it's measurable, and if so, you test it, you measure it, and you find out if the hypothesis is true in a scientific definition of a theory would be a carefully thought out explanation for observe for observations of the natural world that has been constructed using the scientific method 
and which brings together many facts and hypotheses. What I would like to do in our discussion today is we'll look at Article of Faith number nine as if it were a hypothesis. Look at the evidence, look at the facts, see if it's measurable, and determine if this is something that we could classify as a theory. One of the things that is typically done, let's say, for example, if we find that this hypothesis is incorrect, we can make a new hypothesis based on the evidence. We can measure it and try and understand it and try our best to come up with a better way to describe it, a better way to phrase it that might encapsulate the truth better. So how could we test Article of Faith number nine? Well, there is a major claim in it. It says outright that the prophets reveal the word of God. So I want to examine a couple of ways that they might reveal the word of God and see if the prophets in the LDS church actually do that. So to dissect this, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to look at revelations and prophecies that have been made in the church to identify if the prophets have discernible revealing power to see into the future. And the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look at what the prophets say in their present days to see if they're in harmony with each other. Because if they speak for God, one would assume that they would not contradict each other. In the History of the Church, Volume 2, page 182, Joseph Smith Jr. mentions, The coming of the Lord, which was nigh, even 56 years, should wind up the scene. This prediction was made in 1835. If that prophecy would have come true, would have meant that the second coming of Christ would have been in 1891. You will see people downplay this prophecy and say that it was a joke that God played on Joseph by telling him that, because Joseph died well before it happened, and that only if Joseph would have been alive would that have come true. That's a little bit more mental gymnastics than I'm willing to do. The next one, the next prophecy I want to look at is in Doctrine and Covenants 117, verse 12. This is a prophecy specifically to an individual member of the church that did not come to pass. And this is this is an interesting one. It doesn't get brought up very often, but it says, And again I say unto you, I remember my servant Oliver Granger. Behold, Verily I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation. So here's a prophecy directly in scripture about a man named Oliver Granger saying that he will be remembered. I had never heard of this man until I was researching for this episode. In my mind, that is an unfulfilled prophecy, but I am not going to tell the listener what to believe. So another prophecy that Joseph Smith made is in Doctrine and Covenants 87, and this is the revelation on, and prophecy on war. It's referred to as Joseph Smith actually seeing and prophesying of the upcoming civil war. This one is usually used by believers as evidence that Joseph Smith was a prophet because the civil war did end up happening. But let's, let's read real quick what exactly is in the prophecy and then understand a little bit of context around what was going on, and then make a decision if, if it really constitutes a prophecy being fulfilled. Saying, Verily, thus saith the Lord concerning the wars that will shortly come to pass, beginning at the rebellion of South Carolina, which will eventually terminate in the death and misery of many souls, 
And the days will come that war will be poured out upon all nations, beginning at this place. For behold, the southern states shall be divided against the northern states, and the southern states will call on the, na the nations, even the nation of Great Britain, as it is called, and they shall also call upon other nations in order to defend themselves against other nations. And thus war shall be poured out upon all nations. And it shall come to pass after many days, slaves shall rise up against their masters, who shall be marshaled and disciplined for war. And it shall come to pass also, the remnants who are left on the land will marshal themselves also, and shall become exceedingly angry, and shall vex the Gentiles with a sore vexation. And thus with the sword and by bloodshed the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn, and with famine and plague and earthquakes and the thunder of heaven and the fierce and vivid lightning also shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation chastening hand of an almighty God, who the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations that cry of the saints, and the blood of the saints shall cease to come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth from the earth to be avenged of their enemies. Wherefore stand ye in holy places, and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. For behold, it cometh quickly, saith the Lord. That is Doctrine and Covenants 87. So let's understand a little bit about what context was happening. This prophecy was given December 25th in 1832. So let's, let's understand a little bit more about what was happening at that time. And we'll point by point talk about a few of the things of his revelation. So four weeks before the prophecy, on November 24th, a tariff nullification ordinance was passed in South Carolina. This ordinance dismissed certain acts of the Congress of the United States. In 1832, U.S. President Andrew Jackson warned forts in South Carolina that a confrontation with the state was possible. So he made this prophecy a month after the President of the United States threatened war with South Carolina. He, he specifically says all nations will get involved in this war. And this, frankly, did not happen. Now, the southern states did ask Great Britain for help, but Britain never got directly involved. The other part of the prophecy is that Britain was going to specifically call on other nations and get, it, get more countries involved in this war. But that never happened. And the other prophecy at the end of this that, that goes unmentioned is, is it's basically an end times prophecy. And it says that, it says specifically in, in the latter half of verse 6, it says, The wrath and indignation and chastening hand of an almighty God until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations. So it's basically saying that due to this civil war, all nations will end. The full end of all nations. This did not happen. So back to our hypothesis. The hypothesis that we're examining is, do prophets reveal future events? And as we can clearly see, they do not have any more access to visionary revelation of future events than anyone else. There are very few instances of revelation happening in the modern church. It is a concept that is not part of the current culture in the church, and that's fine. 
an interesting thing to notice is before the coronavirus hit and the world went on lockdown, the prior general conference talk that President Nelson gave, he said, take your vitamin pills. And many members of the church took this to be a prophecy about COVID. But when he spoke again at the next general conference, he clarified and said that that was not a prophecy. One would think that if we had a prophet that could reveal, that he would reveal something. Let's examine this word of God that they reveal. The will of God, in my mind, would be interpreted as the doctrine and policy and the way the church is being led. So let's examine how the church is led and if prophets are consistent in the way that they lead the church. In Article of Faith 9, it says that we believe all that God has revealed and all that he does now reveal. The implication of this is that God reveals his words to the prophets. Okay, that's fine. If he believes that, that's great. I believed that at one point in time. But here's where it becomes a problem. What if these prophets disagree with each other? This happens very often. And I will cite a few occasions just as a, as a starting point for this discussion. An early teaching about God is that God is increasing in knowledge and power. Wilford Woodruff said in Journal of Discourses, Volume 6, page 120, published in 1857, he said, If there were a point where a man in his progression could not proceed any further, the very idea would throw a gloom over every intelligent and reflecting mind. God himself is increasing in knowledge, power, and dominion, and will do so, worlds without end. It is just so with us. We are in a probation, which is a school of, of experience. Now, what does the modern church teach? In the Gospel Principles book, published in 1992, it said, God is a glorified and perfected man, a personage of flesh and bones. Inside his tangible body is an eternal spirit. In God is perfect. He is a God of love, mercy, charity, truth, power, faith, knowledge, and judgment. He has all power. He knows all things. He is full of goodness. So I ask the question, which truth did God reveal to his prophet? Did he reveal it to Wilford Woodruff? Wilford Woodruff said that God is continuing to grow in knowledge and truth. Or did he reveal his word to the modern prophets who wrote and approved of the Gospel Principles book? Let's look at another example. This is a quote from Brigham Young. Brigham Young in the Journal of Discourses, volume 2, page 89 says, says he, I dare not even call a man to be a deacon to assist me in, in my calling unless he has a family. It is not the business of an ignorant young man of no experience in family matters to inquire into the circumstances of family and know the wants of every person. Select a man who has got a family to be a deacon whose wife can go with him. All right, what does the modern church talk about? Deacons. You'll see again, I'm just I'm going to cite from the Gospel Principles book, the 1992 edition. That's just the one that I have at hand. 
A boy who has been baptized and confirmed a member of the church is worthy to be ordained to the office of a deacon when he is 12 years old. So here's that same question again. Was Brigham Young inspired by God? Or were the modern prophets when they wrote the Gospel Principles book? I'll cite a modern example as well, where you have Gordon B. Hinckley in the October 1990 General Conference under the talk of Mormon should mean more good speaks directly about the word Mormon and instructs its members to use it in a way where the word means more good. And it's a, it's a reframing in their minds of the word in a positive way to help the members be proud of who they are and their heritage. And then in October of 2018, you have President Russell M. Nelson's talk, The Correct Name of the Church, where he famously referred to the word Mormon as a victory for Satan and instructed that the church go by its official name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So again, I ask the question, was Gordon B. Hinckley's instruction to use the word Mormon as a positive message inspired by God, or was Russell M. Nelson's? And I could list countless other examples from race and the priesthood to, to the worth of souls, specifically ones with disabilities, and to the valiancy of a soul in the premortal existence corresponding to the body that they receive. I could list countless examples of this. So now that we've examined both prophets' ability to reveal the future and the present, we could go into their ability to reveal the past, and I could discuss the Kinderhook Plates and the Book of Abraham and show examples. We'll leave it at this for now. I don't want my podcast to be a podcast where you go to, to find all of the facts. I want you to come here to think about them and come to a conclusion of what they mean and how they should influence your decision to lead your life. Now that we've taken our hypothesis that the Mormon prophets receive the word of God and teach it to their people, let's critically analyze the evidence and determine if we should convert this hypothesis into a theory or if we need to revise the hypothesis. And if we need to revise the hypothesis, what would a better hypothesis be that we might be able to convert into a theory. If we leave the hypothesis as it is, it creates a paradox. And that paradox is that all Mormon prophets reveal the word of God. The paradox derives from the fact that they contradict each other. So now that we've examined the evidence, Let's look at this hypothesis. Let's look at Article of Faith number 9 and see if it holds truth. An important contradiction in this is that if we believe everything that he has revealed and everything that he has said through his past prophets, we would have to believe dissonant ideas. We would have to believe that God both cursed black people and also loves them, and they're not cursed. 
I could list many examples of this, but I think that one is poignant enough to suffice. The statement in Article of Faith 9 cannot be true because the prophets contradict each other. And it also cannot be true because the times that they have prophesied, they seem to have no more ability to see the future than anyone else. They could just be men doing their best to lead the church. So let's rewrite the hypothesis based on this evidence. So let's go back to the example, to the Articles of Faith. It says that we, that we believe God will reveal his will to his prophets. We have demonstrated clearly that these prophets are contradicting each other. And this creates a problem. And the problem is, who should we believe? You'll hear many different, different ideas on what to do about this. Many people will say it's not to be counted as doctrine if it wasn't spoken over the pulpit. You'll have people saying it can't be doctrine unless multiple apostles attest to its veracity. It can't be doctrine unless a prophet said it. It can't be doctrine unless multiple prophets have said it. When they contradict each other, well, the original one must have been a policy or the ideology of man. We need to trust the modern day prophet. The problem is, how do we know that the prophets today won't be thrown under the bus by the prophets of tomorrow? How can we trust what they say when they so quickly course correct and contradict each other as soon as the other person is, has passed away? Now, I know that the church has run in an hierarchical manner where the leader, the top leader, is just the oldest surviving apostle. In effect, that just means that the apostle that outlives all of his companions becomes the leader of the church. And when he becomes leader of the church, he is free to do what he, what he wants with the previous teachings of his predecessors. Now, that's fine if someone wants to accept this contradiction. You can't debate facts. But I cannot tell someone what to believe or what conclusions to make from those facts. Now, someone like this user who made this comment on my TikTok is welcome to believe that the prophets are still inspired and the prophet that has outlived his companions is the one that's designed to lead the church. For me, there is no distinguishable way to determine what is an eternal truth and what is a lowercase t truth that will just change in a couple of generations. Now let's go back and look at the claim all prophets reveal God's word to his people. They contradict each other so often to the point where it disproves this claim of them having any greater access to God than anyone else. The logical conclusion from looking at the evidence is that they are men doing their best to lead the church. And this brings us right back to the question I asked after stating the evidence that they contradict each other. How 
can someone confidently know when a prophet is speaking for God or not? How do we know when Russell M. Nelson is talking that the next prophet in line will not change the doctrines that he teaches? Or the next three prophets to come won't come back and contradict the teachings of our current prophet. There is no metric that I can determine to see what things will change and won't change. The only metric is that they consistently change across the board. And if you accept them as just men, leading the church, trying to guide its people, then that's fine. The hypothesis that the prophets reveal the word of God is proven false by looking at their words. This does not mean that they're not good people trying their best. It just means that we need to take them off of their pedestal and recognize them for what they really are. After examining this hypothesis, looking at some of the the facts, we can see that the hypothesis of Article of Faith number 9, that the Mormon Church has prophets, and these prophets reveal the word of God to his people, we can see that this hypothesis is untenable. It is not true. So in science, when when you examine the evidence and you find that your hypothesis is wrong, you go back to the drawing board. You rephrase and reformulate your ideas and you come up with a new hypothesis based on the evidence you formulate a statement and you continue researching so let's let's restate it let's restate it based on what evidence we have we could say it a little bit like this the mormon church has prophets these prophets reveal what they say to be the word of God according to their interpretation of scripture and current events. That's how I would reframe the article of faith number nine as a hypothesis that could be easily converted into a theory based on the evidence. Now, what does that mean? When I was struggling with interpretations of scripture and struggling to find my place in this world based on my understanding of the Mormon church and the teachings of the church. I found myself with less and less confidence in the prophets and in their words. Even though I'm not a believing member of the church, I'm going to suggest a way that a faithful member might interpret this evidence a little bit differently than I do. If you look at it as a way of God allowing his prophets to make mistakes and grow and learn and even be judged, then you've created a space where this sort of system works. It also makes the relationship between member of the church and leader of the church healthier, where instead of deifying them, You can see that they are men. I won't address the fact that there should be more women leadership in the church. And if there were more women leadership, we may have a lot healthier doctrines being taught. That's a discussion for another day. Knowing that they are men doing their best is actually liberating. You can see them as a person. And I think that is a more healthy way 
to look at anyone in the church. Taking prophets off of this pedestal of infallibility is important. When we look at them more as spiritual guides than the literal mouthpiece of God, then the members of the church can have a healthier relationship with the, with the prophet and a healthier relationship with God. It gives them access and the ability to, to listen to a prophet and determine when they are speaking for God and when they aren't speaking for God, if something resonates with them or if something doesn't resonate with them. Because ultimately, this decision is on the member themselves. It's on the person, the individual, to determine if God is speaking to them or not. If we look in the scriptures, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And these are all, well, I'm reading, I'm reading the New International Version. That's why it might sound different to some people. These are all good things. But if you're hearing something from a prophet of God and it doesn't bring you those emotions, then it is not of God. If they're telling a whole, a whole class of people that they're less than, if they're telling a whole group of people that they cannot have the blessings of eternity, that does not sound like love. Now, even though I'm on the outside and I don't believe in a traditional God, I have people dear to me that do, and I understand their belief. I understand what it's like to be a believing person. I would venture to say that the God of the New Testament is a loving God. The God of the Old Testament sure isn't. <laughs> but maybe that's a discussion for another day. My perspective on scripture as an agnostic is that there is deep spiritual value in learning the stories and the cultures and beliefs of other people. And I find value in the scriptures still. This concept of loving your neighbor is profound and should be taught. Loving and accepting other people is what we should do. And from the ex-Mormon perspective, loving and accepting your neighbor includes the members of the church. And that's, that's why I try and keep this tone, where I, I try and allow for a space for believers to exist and for believers to learn about the difficult history, but still keep a faithful interpretation of scripture. That's fine. That's, that's a valid understanding. I hope that you've enjoyed the episode today. I perhaps came down a little harder than I have in my first two episodes. I'll try to remain more neutral in future episodes, but I felt like a look into this as a hypothesis warranted a little bit more criticism than I had previously done. If this content is something that you enjoy, please like and subscribe on whatever podcast app that you're using. Leave a comment, send me a message, let me know your thoughts on some of the things I've said. I am not afraid to be wrong. I'm not afraid to misunderstand or misinterpret something. So if there's something that you found or you've researched and found a different answer than I did, go ahead and let me know, and we can start a discussion about it. I would be happy to post in a future podcast episode a retraction of something I've said based on an insight that I've gleaned from a listener. Thank you for listening. 
I hope that you have an excellent day.